morning. Good morning. Welcome to Barah Ministries, uh, an intimate local Christian church with worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark, and at Barah Ministries we know this truth, that Jesus Christ is God. The Lord is 100% deity, he is God the Son, he is also 100% human, just like you and me, his name is Jesus Christ. And the Lord, God the Son, became flesh, Jesus Christ, and lived among us. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the savior of the whole world. He is the Jewish Messiah. Those who make Barah Ministries their spiritual home believe in Jesus Christ. We are Christians, and we have a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. The Lord Jesus Christ is a person, not a thing or a concept. And just as we would do with any person we love, We spend time getting to know the Lord through the study of his word. You can't get to know the Lord without knowing his mind, and the Bible is his exact thinking. In Acts chapter 2, verse 21, Peter repeats what the prophet Joel said, which is this, It shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Barah Ministries makes a difference by teaching the word of God from God's perspective and not from man's perspective. We search the scriptures to learn who the Lord is as a person and to learn what our God has to say about himself and his plan for all mankind and about his personal plan for each one of us. And we are here to learn how to see our lives from his perspective. Today's Bible lesson, you have no right to judge yourself or others. You have no right to judge yourself or or others. Well, in high school, I ran track. One of my events was the long jump, which I find very interesting and ironic because my mother participated in the 1936 Olympic trials in the long jump, and I didn't even know that before choosing to be a long jumper. She actually tore her cartilage in one of her jumps and was done with her track and uh, Olympic aspirations. Another of my events was the 100-yard dash, Remember when events were measured in yards and not meters? (laughs) Some of you do. But that was a long time ago. Now, occasionally, my coach would send me out for a third event, and that was to be the pacer, which we called a rabbit, on the quarter-mile race. Now, what the rabbit would do, the pacer would run the 100-yard dash speed during the quarter-mile, And it was designed to throw off the pace of the other opponent runners because they were thinking that this was going to be a faster race than it was. And so they'd speed up early and then they'd bonk at the end of the race. Now, one of the times, I should just tell you this, one of the times uh, my coach had me do that, I just decided that I was going to sprint the entire quarter mile and I was going to try to win the race as the pacer. And I got about three-quarters of the way into the race. I slipped and fell flat on my face, skinned all the skin off my arm, rolled over on the track, and puked as the other other racers ran and jumped over me. So I turned the race into the uh, hurdles instead of the quarter-mile race. But actually, a lot of times, it worked. 
that I would throw off the pace of our opponent runners. Well, this trip down Amnesia Lane came to mind during this week's study because I remembered that not many marathoners are leading the race at the midpoint in the race. You know that a marathon is 26 miles, 345 yards, and somebody wins that race. So you ask yourself, where is that person who wins the marathon at the midpoint in the race? And no matter how many marathons you study, they are almost never at the front of the race in the middle of the race. They aren't. They are not the pacers. They are not running a rabbit pace. They know that slow and steady wins the race. So, but what would it be like if winning marathoners judged themselves in the middle of the race? What if they judged every step they were taking during the race? They'd be judging themselves too harshly because they eventually win the race, but at the midpoint in the race, they're not in the lead. See? So a marathoner would never judge himself by where he is in the middle of the race. Well, how about you? Do you judge your life by where you are in the middle of the race? Yeah, all the time. All the time. You're absolutely certain that you're in the middle of the race and you're in the middle of the pack and that you're horrible and that you're never going to ever be any good. That's, that's what believers in Christ too. We are always listening to that little voice that we have inside, which is called the flesh, that part of us which is judging our lives. You're so stupid. I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you made a mistake. You're wrong. What's wrong? You did it wrong again. You know, so many believers in Christ judge their lives by a standard of right and wrong. It's the standard of morality. That is not the way the Lord judges our life. He does not judge our life based on whether we are right or wrong. He judges on a completely different standard. The Lord doesn't judge. Here's the key thing, though. The Lord doesn't judge your race, your life, until it's over. So why do you? Why do you judge your life before it's over? Why would you judge your life in the middle of the race, especially when, as a believer in Christ, you've already won the race through your union with Christ? At the moment you become a believer in Christ, God the Holy Spirit, through the baptism of the Spirit, places you into a union with Christ that you can't get out of, so you've won the race. You're going to heaven. Now, why would you look at where you are in the race and start judging it and start pulling out the imaginary rubber hose and beating yourself up with it? Not smart. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So, in today's lesson, we're going to learn that we have no right to judge ourselves or others as we run the race of our lives. The righteous judge is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And at the end of our lives, he and he alone is the only one who is qualified to make a righteous judgment about our lives. So I guess what I'm saying is, get off your own back. You think you can do that? You think you can do that? 
Yeah, you didn't answer because you know you don't want to be lying because, no, you don't do that, but you need to do that. All right, well, let's hear some music. A lot of us make ourselves victims of our past. A lot of ourselves make ourselves victims of our past. We define ourselves by our mistakes. Yet as Christians, we know that everything happens, that it happens to us, passes through God the Father's hands. Nothing happens to us without God's permission. He allows tribulation in our lives so that he can work all of our experiences together for our good. So in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul says this, Brethren, that's a reference to fellow believers in Christ. I, Paul, do not regard myself as having laid hold of spiritual maturity yet. And this is 30 years into his ministry to the church age. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, the past, and reaching forward to what lies ahead, the future, today I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God the Father in union with Christ Jesus. The group Casting Crowns puts this sentiment into song, in their song, At Your Feet.
Heavenly Father, for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Father, thank you for the compassionate way you look at us. You are a gracious God, slow to anger, filled with unconditional love for us, readily dispensing forgiveness. And we thank you for all the amazing things you do for us, especially for sending your Son to die for us when we were ungodly, unrighteous sinners. Teach us to view our lives the same way you do, to look at ourselves with compassion and forgiveness and grace and unconditional love. We ask this through the power of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Oh, you want to change the slide? All right, (laughs) there it is. You want to pray again? We can pray again. (laughs) Today's Bible lesson, you have no right to judge yourself or others. You have no right to judge yourselves or others. Now, that's literal, which is, by the way, the proper use of literal, because our generation, you know, the young generation, literally, everything is literally, but this is literal. You do not have the right to judge yourself. That is only God's prerogative. So that's why judging is a sin. Because when we're judging, we're assuming God's prerogative. And it doesn't matter whether you're directing it to others or whether you're directing it to yourself. You have no right to do that. That is not your job. Your job is not to look at yourself in the middle of the race and say, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm behind in the race. Well, why do we do it? Let's blame it where we blame everything else. Let's blame it on our parents. Let's blame it on our parents. Our parents imposed their standards on us, and that's why we do it, right? No. It's not why. You choose to do that. 
and you have no right to do it. You know, if you want to blame your parents for that when you're a kid, I get it. But once you get 21, you're an adult. You get to make up your own decisions. And and really, the thing that shocks me about adults is they're always looking back to their childhood as if that's the place where they really ought to be looking to get what their future's all about. You didn't know Jack when you were under 21 years old. You knew nothing. Now, you're going to look back to that and to your family situation, which was really just designed to protect you and to kick you out into the world. You're going to look at that as the, as the, 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 the watermark times in your life. You, your imperfect parents are really the ones who shape your whole future. They don't. My mom was amazing, but she was wrong about most stuff, honestly. But she wasn't wrong about her vision for me and what she wanted for me. But, for example, one of the things my mom told her, the key to success in life is education. That's a bunch of bull. The people who are the most educated are the ones who do the least in this life. The top 500 people, the top 500 wealthiest people did not go to college. 90% of them didn't go to college. So if you look at the data... The stuff that our parents told us, and then you compare it to the data, they were wrong about most stuff. But see, God didn't see it fit to give us perfect parents because we already had one in him. Amen? So he didn't need you to have perfect human parents. What he needed you to do is have people who would protect you until you got 21. And then once you get 21, you acknowledge this. You know nothing. You know, I got a 31-year-old son. He's 10 years old. He didn't know Jack from 0 to 21, no matter how good the training was. Amen? He's, he's 10 years old. He's still saying goo goo gaga. He's still asking me, we, you know, we go out yesterday. He still asked me, Dad, can I go to the playground? And did you bring the juice boxes? No, I didn't bring the juice boxes. And no, we can't go to the playground. Yeah, he didn't really do that, but it's fun teasing him. Amen? <laughs> yeah, no problem. I got all the juice boxes you want, buddy. Believe that, don't you? That I'll bring you a juice box. So we, can <laughs> so we continue our study of the third passage of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which extends from chapter 1, verse 10, to chapter 4, verse 21. Let's listen to the next part of the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 to 23, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And then we'll study what the Apostle Paul has to say to the church verse by verse. Now, one of the things I want you to know is that in the original languages, which is what pastors study, we study the original languages, there, is no, there are no chapter breaks. So when you look in your Bible and you see chapter 3, then go to chapter 4, and then go to chapter 5, that is not the way it is in the original languages. So a lot of times the chapter break ruins the flow of the passage. And so we've got one of these here. One of the ones that you might most notably think about is no chapter break between Romans 7 and 8. Now Paul goes through this whole thing, the things that I'm doing I don't want to do, I'm doing the very thing I hate, I can't figure out why I'm doing it, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, and then it goes down to the end, thanks be to God, Uh, God the Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who will deliver me from this body of death. New chapter. 
Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in union with Christ. There's no chapter break there. Therefore, there is no, no uh, condemnation for those who are in union with Christ. It's part of chapter 7. It's part of that whole passage. And so the chapter break actually ruins it. Well, you're going to see that here. The chapter break really ruins the flow of this. So now that you know that there's not a chapter flow, you know that these, these two passages within the passage just flow right together. All right, let's take a look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. So, let no man deceive himself. Said another way, stop lying to yourself. Don't be a victim. Don't give in to the internal deception that causes divisions and rivalries. Now, in the Greek, this is in the imperative mood, which is the mood of command. So Paul is telling you, I order you Christians to do this. Stop lying to yourself. And in this particular section, there are four commands, four imperative moods. So you'll hear him telling you. So he's gone in this passage from being really subtle to giving a rebuke and now to ordering you, to commanding you. And who's commanding you when the command is happening? God. God, through his word, is commanding you. And what he's saying to you is, stop lying to yourself. Why would he say that? Because we lie to ourselves all the time. (laughs) Tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what I want to hear. You're ugly. That's what, oh, you don't want to hear that? Okay, well, still true. All right. So, (laughs) let no man deceive himself. Stop lying to yourself. If any man among you presumes that he's wise in this age... Let him become a fool to the world in order to become wise. Now, this will make sense to you if you realize that this is the continuation of something that was said earlier in the passage, the two types of wisdom. The world's wisdom, human viewpoint, and God's wisdom. And so what he's saying here is if you think you're smart, you better be getting your viewpoint from God and not from human beings. Because remember the Corinthians were real close to Athens. Corinth is real close to Athens. And Athens is where all the thinkers of the day were. There was one guy there, Seneca. And I couldn't find this, this thing that Seneca said from a long time ago, but I remembered it from my high school study of uh, Greek literature. And what he said is that you should examine yourself every day. And at the end of the day, in doing that examination, give yourself a grade so that it would inspire you to be better tomorrow. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. And he's the wise guy of the day, the philosophers. Well, why is that so stupid? First of all, because we can't do it. But second of all, because it's all about self and I. God is the one changing us. You don't change you. God changes you. You don't want to do about 90% of the things God's asking you to do. (laughs) That was my deacon. (laughs) Amen, brother. (laughs) But... 
And, and by the way, the reason we don't want to do the stuff that God wants us to do is because it works. We have a better idea. Oh, great. <laughs> so, so if you want to become wise, this 1 Corinthians 3.18 says that you have to become foolish to the world because the world thinks anyone who's studying the Bible is a fool. The world thinks that anybody who's studying the Bible is a Bible thumper. Thump, thump, thump. Well, count me in. I'm a Bible thumper. Because that's where I get my wisdom from, and I don't need the wisdom of the world. Amen? Amen. 1 Corinthians 3.19. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. For it is written, God is the one who catches the wise in their cunning schemes. The cunning always think that they're going to get away with it. And then it doesn't happen that way. Amen? Amen, <laughs> Amen juice box. <laughs> First Corinthians 3.20. And again it is written, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and those thoughts are useless. They are futile. There's an old saying, God, we make plans and God laughs. That's not exactly true, but there's some wisdom in it, right? And the wisdom in it is stop thinking that you can do everything. Let God do it for you. He's amazing at doing things. 1 Corinthians 3.21. So then, let no one boast about humans. Again, this is in the imperative mood, the mood of command. For in God's plan, everything belongs to you, believers in Christ. Everything belongs to you. So what is it that you want? Whatever you want, you can have because everything God has it belongs to you. And what does God have? He has, what's the word? Everything. We start every lesson that way. Everything. God has everything. And all of those things belong to you. That's what this says. Do you believe that? Uh-huh. You don't. That's why you quiet. You don't believe that. Why don't you believe it? Because you never let yourself experience it. You're always in the way with your plans. As opposed to just accepting that God's got a plan for you, and that plan's pretty good, and he knows you way better than you know you. Get out of his way. Allow him to do his job. 1 Corinthians 3.22 all right, so whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you, believers in Christ, because they come to you from God. Why do they belong to you? Because God's going to bring them to you. If you stop interfering, 1 Corinthians 3.23, and you belong to Christ. You're a possession of God as a believer in Christ. You're one of his children. He owns you. This would have been a good time for you own me, your song. And Christ belongs to God the Father. Do you remember that song? Uh, yeah, okay, you do. Yeah, that one. All right. No chapter break, continuing 1 Corinthians 4.1. Let a man regard us teachers... In this manner, again, the mood of command, how are you to regard teachers? As fellow servants executing the orders of Christ. 
and as stewards, people who have been entrusted with something, distributing God the Father's mysteries, the previously unrevealed doctrines of this church age, and the mystery of the church age is Christ indwelling you, the hope of glory. See, every believer in Christ is indwelled by the entire Trinity in this age. That is, if you are a believer in Christ inside of you, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son are indwelling you. They're inside of you. Now, what does that mean to you? It means that you have a power source inside of you that would stagger anyone's imagination. But here's the problem. You don't use it. Amen? No, because you're busy using human power for everything. How's that working out? (laughs) Is that working out? Doesn't work out. 1 Corinthians 4.2, in addition, it is required of stewards to be found trustworthy. There's what God wants for you. What does it mean to be trustworthy? He just wants you to be faithful. What does he want you to do? He wants you to keep getting your butt out of bed on Sunday and trekking down here and learning the word of God. He wants you to not let anything get in the way of that. He wants you to listen to this lesson over and over again during the week so that it sinks in what he's trying to tell you. And what he's trying to tell you is, I am indwelling you. I have a plan for you. I got you. Get out of my way. There are two things you can do. I, when you became a believer in Christ, I put you in a limousine. Now, there are two people who can drive that limousine. I can drive it or you can drive it. Which one do you want? Do you want to drive it or do you want me to drive it? That's what he's always asking us. And what are we answering? I drive. I got it. <laughs> I like driving. I like I, I definitely because my dad lets me drive on the driveway on Saturday. <laughs> definitely Saturday. He doesn't need your help. But we always want to drive. And then what do we do? We crash the car. He comes around from the back seat and says, you want me to fix the car? Yeah. You want me to drive? Yeah. So he starts driving, and then about five minutes later, you know, can I drive? We ask it again. And it takes 500,000 times of crashing the car before we really finally realize that just sitting in the back seat of the limo is a pretty good idea. Years and years. 1 Corinthians 4.3. But to me, Paul, it's a petty thing that I should be examined by you. What is he saying? I don't care what you think of me. I don't care what you think of me. And in fact, 2 Corinthians is him defending himself as a teacher. The whole book, 14 or 15 chapters, he's defending himself as a teacher. But he doesn't care what they think. He says, to me, it's a petty thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. You can examine me under a, in a court of law. I don't care. In fact, I don't even bother examining myself. <gasps> Paul, you're not introspective? No, I'm not. Now, as one of the great introspective people of all time, me, I will tell you it is a complete waste of time. 
It is a complete waste of your energy being introspective. Now, Socrates says, an unexamined life is not worth living. I agree with that. There's nothing wrong with examining your life, but this incessant going inside and asking why this happens and, you know, and booger rubbing. Don't. Don't. Study the word. You want to be introspective, study the word, and the word will talk to you inside. It will talk to you. Booger rubbing is when you take a booger from your nose and then rub it around in your fingers. That's what it is. Incessantly looking to see where it disappeared to. 1 Corinthians 4.4 4. For I, Paul, am conscious of nothing against myself, that's another way to say Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in union with Christ. I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet that doesn't mean I'm acquitted by this. I'm by no means innocent. That's what he's saying. But the one who examines me is the Lord. That's the point. I don't examine myself. I don't come down on myself. I don't I don't indict myself. Why? Because I don't have the right to judge myself, and I certainly don't have the right to judge you. You don't have the right to judge anybody else. You're looking at their life mid-race, and you're saying, I can't believe that they do that. Stop doing it. That's what God is saying to us here. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore, Therefore, is always the summary word. In light of all that we just saw in all those previous verses, therefore, do not keep on passing judgment on yourself or anyone else. Command. Before the appointed time. This is the imperative mood, the mood of command. What is the appointed time? The rapture of the church. The end of this age when all believers in Christ are plucked off the earth, when the Lord comes to meet us in the clouds. That's the appointed time for your judgment. But who's going to be doing the judgment? Who's going to be doing the judgment? Somebody. Christ. Christ does the judging, not you. If you do the judging, it's going to be horrible. So don't keep on passing judgment on yourself or anyone else before the appointed time, the rapture of the church. Again, this is the mood of command, imperative mood. But wait until the Lord comes back to judge at the rapture, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and who will disclose the motives of every person's heart, and then each person's praise will come from God. Ooh, God's going to bring all stuff to light. All the stuff that's in your closet. Oh, my goodness. He's going to pull it all out and show it to everybody and embarrass you. He's going to show your dirty laundry, right? No, no that's not what he's going to do. But everybody that looks at that, that's what they want to think. I knew it was hidden in here somewhere that God was going to come down on us. It's not the way he works. Sorry. Just look at the last part. Look at the last line. Why is he bringing everything to light? So that you can get praise. And what are you going to get praise for? Gold, silver, and precious stones. You remember that from last week? What are you not going to get praise for? Wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, and straw. 
dead works. That's going to get burned up. And what you're going to get praised for is what you did that was in line with what God wanted you to do. That's what he's going to bring to light. All right, so this seems to be two passages. But remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original languages. So what appears to be two passages here is just the continuation of the flow of the third passage of 1 Corinthians, the passage extending from chapter 1, verse 10, to chapter 4, verse 21. So let's remind ourselves of the start of this third passage and then get on with the verse by verse. Here's what you should remember. 1 Corinthians 1.10 Now I, Paul, exhort you, brethren, believers in Christ, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree on everything as it relates to Christianity and that there be no divisions, no rivalries among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same purpose. 1 Corinthians 1.11 For I, Paul, have been informed concerning you, my brethren, in the church at Corinth by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. What is that? Divisions and rivalries. 1 Corinthians 1.12 Now what I, Paul, mean by this is that each one of you is saying, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, and I belong to Cephas, who is Simon Peter. And I belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.13 Has Christ been divided into component parts? Christ is one. He hasn't been divided into component parts. Humans like doing that. When humans divide Christ into component parts, it's called religion. Paul wasn't crucified for your sake, was he? You weren't baptized in the name of Paul, were you? All right, so that's what we're talking about in this whole passage. Chapter 1, verse 10 to chapter 4, verse 21. Divisions and rivalries. So what do we see in this passage? The human condition. Our favorite sport. Rivalries, divisions, eyes on people. And one of the funny, funny things that I, I realized as soon as I proposed to a future wife. What do you think happens right after you propose to a future wife or, the, or you ladies accept a marriage proposal? What do you think happens right after that? Say again? Yeah, plans for the wedding, says Mr. Juicebox. <clears throat> Sorry, you don't get to play double jeopardy. No. What happens is quarrels, rivalries, and divisions. And Yeah, and there's a, there's a simpler reason for it. So June said because they think they've landed the perfect person and that person is it. They certainly do. You know, that, what, what do couples always say when they get together with somebody they're going to marry? It was meant to be. It was meant to be. This is not a fairy tale, people. That, that's Aesop stuff. It was meant to be. Here's what you should say. Let the fighting begin because that's what happens when you get married. Just roll up your sleeves. Okay, let's get it on. Because that's what really happens. And we don't want to deal with that. So what happens right after you, you say, yes, I do? Fighting. Divisions. Rivalries. Why? Because you've just made an announcement that the two are about to become one flesh. Oh, does that look familiar, by the way? The two becoming one looks just like the baptism of the Spirit, doesn't it? Isn't that what marriage is? The two become one flesh. And you're not supposed to ever get out. And so 
Satan hates unity. And so as soon as you announce that you want to be in unity, Satan says, oh, no, you don't, boyfriend. Oh, no, you don't, girlfriend. And he starts attacking the unity. That's exactly what happens. And so now you start fighting. And what are you fighting about? Oh, I think the flowers ought to be in this spot on there. And I don't like your mother. And you, I don't like the way you handle money. And <laughs> Just shut up. Shut up about it. Do you want to get married? Do you want to be one? Work out how you're going to work things out that works for both of you. Stop fighting. That's what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 10 to chapter 4, verse 21. Stop the rivalries and divisions. Stop the fighting. I love watching married couples. They get... You know, they never deal with anything real, especially when the kids come. The kids put, a, put you in a perfect position never to deal with anything real. And then when you go out to dinner, where you're supposed to be going out to having a good time, all you're doing is sending, you know, missiles over the bow. Oh, well, I handle the kids perfectly, but you don't. Oh, well, I did this last week. Here's my tally of things that I did. It's just crazy. And who sponsors that? Satan. Because he hates unity. He loves ruining it. As soon as you announce that you're going to come to Barah Ministries, what happens? Oh, you got it. Absolutely. The poop hits the fan. What are you going to do? Oh, well, Sundays, I, I got to do this with this person and this with that person. Yeah. I wonder how that happened. Because God forbid that you should block out two hours in your schedule to get some spiritual food. That's Satan. Because he doesn't like unity. He doesn't like you coming here being with like-minded people, learning what life is really about. He doesn't like it. And he tries to choke out everything. It's horrible. All right. So this is the thing. These are the things that we deal with as people, rivalries. Now, our verse-by-verse study of the current passage where uh, in, in this we'll learn two things how to think about people, and how to think about our teachers. And by looking at those things, we're going to learn how to look at ourselves as well. You don't have the right to judge yourself or others. Amen? Amen. Now, ultimately, human evaluation of self is myopic. What is myopic? Short-sighted. It's ignoring everything and looking in one place. Myopia. So it lacks real tolerance for others. It lacks real understanding, yet we do it all the time. For our, all right, let's look at the verse by verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. Stop lying to yourself. Stop making yourself a victim. Stop giving in to internal deception. Imperative mood, the mood of command. Don't do it. If any man among you presumes that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool to the world in order to become wise. Who's a fool to the world? People who have done something that the world doesn't approve of. If you've done anything in your life that the world doesn't approve of, the world's critical of you. Oh, well, you should have done this, or you should have done that, or why didn't you do this, or why can't you do this? You know, we, we just lost a, a generational icon, Kobe Bryant. 
And, you know, there's all this fake reverence for the first three days. And then where did they go right after that? Well, you remember when he raped that girl? Right? It was never proven in a court of law that he raped anybody. But in the court of public opinion, he raped somebody. And now let's just let's let's bow quickly to our self-proclaimed icon and then let's start tearing him down as fast as possible. Let's completely forget that he's just a human being like all the rest of us, that all of us have a scrapbook of stupid stuff. Let's just forget that. Let's just tear him up. That's human beings. That's the human condition. That's not what God does. And see, our fault is that we're always attributing that stupidity to God, as if God looks at us that way. That's why at Barah Ministries, we want you to get behind God's eyes and look at how he sees you. And how does he see you? Unconditional love. And what part of un don't you understand? No conditions. But you don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that God loves you unconditionally. You don't want to hear that God has forgiven every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future. You don't want to hear that. You want to beat yourself up. You want to feel bad about yourself. Why? I don't know. But I do know this. I used to do it, and I stopped. I made a decision to stop doing it because the word of God was too overwhelming for me to keep doing that, so I stopped doing it. See, so let no man deceive himself. If any man among you presumes that he's wise in this age, and there are a lot of people who think they're really smart, Let him become a fool to the world in order to become wise. This is a direct attack against being a themeite. And a lot of people who have passed through this this ministry were themeites. We studied with this guy, Pastor Theme, and we worshipped him as if he was a god. You know, everything he said, everything he taught was, was the gospel. And then we found out he was just a guy with a feet of clay who was teaching a lot of truth, but... A lot of lies. And there are people that I know who I am very close to, who are really good friends, who have never gotten over themeitism. They still, uh, looking back over their show, you remember when we were studying Pastor Theme? That was such a good time. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. We were being lied to. It wasn't a fun time. It was horrible. Because it kept us from getting to know God. And had us worshiping a man. We looked at other churches with contempt because we thought we were smarter than everybody else. And that we had some some specific line to God that nobody else possibly had. Rivalries, divisions among our church. But really, how smart is it to think you have a corner of the market on Christianity and that everyone else in the world is stupid or off base? just because they study differently. Look, I don't wave my hands when I worship God. I don't. But I don't have anything against the people who do. They're feeling it. I'm, I don't, I'm not a feeler. I'm a thinker. All right? So you feelers, please forgive me. <laughs> I just opened up a can of worms. Now, look. To be sure, I am not a fan of megachurches. I don't think having concerts or a divorce ministry or turning the church into a social club and a reflection of the world is going to do a single thing for you when your doctor tells you that you have bone marrow cancer 
or colon cancer or prostate cancer or breast cancer or that you have eight mo- or leukemia or that you have eight months to live. The concert, the megachurch is not going to do anything for you. But what is going to do something for you? The word. That's why our focus here is the word. What does God have to say about it? And when you get bone marrow cancer, what does God have to say about it? He says, I will work all things together for your good. Relax. That's comforting to me. So I find that the word of God is really helpful in these tribulation situations. I find the Doobie Brothers songs are not helpful at all. I don't need a concert. Stop lying to yourself means grow up. God expects it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 says this. As a result, we believers in Christ are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's what liars do. Lying teachers are deceitful in their scheming to get your mind and to twist it so that you think that God has something against you. He does not. Those who considered themselves smart in the Corinthian church had to make others dumb so that they would appeal smarter, that they would appear smarter. But God encourages us not to be too smart for our own good. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19 says this, The wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. For it is written, God is the one who catches the wise in their cunning schemes. And again, it is written, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are useless, absolutely futile. The way my mom used to say it is, you think you're slick, but you can always stand another greasing. You think you're slick, but you can always stand another greasing. Amen? Amen. So what does that mean exactly? Stop being wise. Be foolish. There is the world's wisdom and there's God's wisdom. How are you thinking? Psalm 94, verse 11 says, The Lord knows the thoughts of men, that they are a mere breath. That's an idiom in Hebrew. A mere breath means that they are futile. The thoughts of men are futile. We grow up when we use God's thinking, because God sees us as we really are. He knows what we think, and God doesn't want us building our thought lives with wood, hay, and straw with perishable things, with the world's wisdom that's going to be burned at the judgment. He wants us to build our thoughts with gold, silver, and precious stones, eternal things. He wants us to be the third little pig who built his house of bricks. The first two little pigs built their house of straw and sticks. And what happened? The big bad wolf came and blew their house down. And then what did they do? They ran over and got in the house, the brick house of the third little pig, who they were teasing for taking the proper steps and the proper amount of time to build a house of bricks, to build a house on the rock. Amen? Amen. So, if you want to evaluate what you're doing, ask what God would think about it. Go right to Scripture. Learn God's viewpoint. You can fool yourself, but you can't fool God. And that's what a lot of people think. They think they're pulling a con play on God that they're pretending for one thing, really having other motives, and that they're going to fool God. You can't fool God. 
No human thought escapes God's notice. And so are your thoughts centered on divisions and rivalries? Or are your thoughts centered on God? When we return from our five-minute break, we'll take your offering, and then we'll continue our study of this section of the passage. Take a five-minute break. Why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. All my life I've been told I belong at the end of the line. Will all the other not quite? Will all the never get it right? But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time. Cause I'm just a nobody. We're trying to tell everybody. All about somebody who saved my soul Ever since you rescued me You gave my heart a song to sing I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus Moses had stage fright And David brought a rock to a sword fight you picked 12 outsiders nobody would have chosen And you changed the world Well, the moral of the story is Everybody's got a purpose So when I hear that devil start talking to me Saying, who do you think you are? I say, I'm, I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody All about somebody Who saved my soul For the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus So let me go down, down, down In history As another blood-bought Faithful member of the family And if they all forget my name Well, that's fine with me Living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. So let me go down, down, down in history. Down in history. As another blood bought faithful member of the family. That's all I ever wanna be. And if they all forget my name, well that's fine with me. Living for the world to see nobody but Jesus.
no right to judge yourself or others. You have no right to judge yourself or others. Believers in Christ in the first century had each other's back in the matter of giving. Acts chapter 4 verse 32 says this, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Now, they were not socialists. They didn't believe in the redistribution of wealth. They simply looked out for each other. Acts chapter 4, verses 34 and 35 say this, For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, Acts 4:35, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and the proceeds would be distributed to each as any had need. So thank you for giving to Barah Ministries so that we can provide the Word of God to those who have need. And we're looking forward to the day when the impact of our giving can be even greater. Let's welcome up Deacon Denny Goodall with today's offering message. Good morning. I'm Denny Goodall, and I'm blessed to be one of the slow learners of Barah Ministries. And I'm proud to be a deacon for Barah Ministries as well. Barah Ministries is a worldwide Christian church where real people come to listen to a real pastor teach the real truth from the Word of God. And as we've been studying Corinthians, I've been just thinking how amazing Paul is and how patient Paul is because he wrote them two letters telling them about all the stuff they've been doing wrong and what they need to change. And he could have written one or he could have written none and just written them off and said, no, I'm done with you. But he had patience, and patience like God does. And it makes me think of my own life. You know, I, went, I graduated from the University of Iowa with a B.A. in art. And you think about art, art doesn't just pop into being generally. It's something that you have to be patient. You have to build. Like if you're carving, it takes 20 hours to carve an eagle. And you could mess it up. And then you're, you've got a bad eagle that you've spent 20 hours in. It's pretty frustrating. And so really anything in art can take a long time, like painting and sculpture and some of the, even the new art. You know, there's, there's uh, social media now that's kind of changed it with video and all. But you can take video real quick, but it takes a long time to edit it all together and make it look right. It takes a lot of time. It's a lot of work. And so patience, right? And then you think about my career. I went into woodworking, and we do cabinets and specialty woodworking, and that's... I always complain about it. It just takes time to do everything. I've got to prep all these parts and build, mill the woodworking and glue it together and clamp it and flush route. And then you've got all these parts you've got to sand. Oh, man, I've got to sand all this stuff to get it ready for finish. And then finish takes time and assembly and install. It's just so, everything takes time. You just, I'm learning that life is all about patience. It's all about having patience. And, you know, now fast forward to being a dad. I've got two little kids who are completely impatient. And I have to try to be impatient with them. You know, and Emily's trying to get them off to school every morning. Put your shoes on. Put your socks on. Put your socks on. It's like a recording. And she has to be so patient with them. And it's easy to lose your patience. It's really easy to lose your patience with them and with others and all the time. And so, well, you know, I was thinking to myself, what, is, what does this all apply to? How does this even fit into the spiritual life? You know, let's get spiritual with this thought. And what is pastor's lesson? It answers my question. We have to have patience with, with our spiritual lives because we can't judge ourselves or others. We have to have patience with them, with ourselves and with others. And it's not easy. It's really not easy. Sometimes it's very difficult, especially with ourselves. 
But we look through the Bible and we see what does Luke say in chapter 8, verse 15. But the seed, the word of God sowed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word with an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. It doesn't say instantly. It doesn't say speed. Perseverance with patience. And I think of Larry every time we think of sowing the seed, you know. You put a seed in the dirt and do you sit there and watch it grow? No, you have to be patient. You have to put a lot of time and effort into it and wait and wait and hopefully you get the rains and hopefully you get the sun and what if you don't? And then all this crop and all this time you spend is ruined. It's very frustrating, but it's patience. But when you get through that and you have a great crop and all the, everything's done, it gives you a, a great sense of hope and a great sense of accomplishment. It's really worth it when something takes time. And that's how this Barah Ministries experience is being. It's going to be slow and it's going to take a while. But it's going to be so worth it when we finally get the impact center. And, you know, I was trying to think of some antithetical thoughts of that. You know, what, why is fast bad? Think about it. Fast food. It's not good for you. Something that's fast is not always good. You know, think about a fast car. Lots of fun. You drive that right off a cliff or into an embankment. You know, you think of uh, fast women. That's the, the quote, the old quote, you know. There's a problem there. Hey, one more. And you think of... You, it's, he, you gave it to me. You think of Pastor. He went out fast in that race, and look what happened to him. He bonked, tripped on his head, and threw up. Right? So, I mean, speed isn't really the key here. And we see it with Pastor's own story. You know, you run out fast, and you think you can do it on your own skill and your own merit, and it doesn't happen that way. We have to lean on God, and He's the one that we say. We hold fast to His Word. And that's the easiest part. Just hold fast to His Word, and we will make it through. And so we all have to have patience with ourselves, with our giving. You know, look what Barah has to do with, we have to have patience with our giving here. Because, you know, sometimes we're a little alligator arms when we get to this point. But we really appreciate your giving, and we just want everybody to remember, be patient with yourself, be patient with others, because nothing fast is good. Nothing helps when we try to go fast. It just makes problems. And there's a saying in the military, it says, smooth is fast, or uh, slow is smooth, and smooth is fast. So if you get through it, and you've done the process right, you don't have to go back and change things. You don't have to feel bad about, about stuff. And uh, another saying we have at work is, uh, work smarter, not harder. If you can put wheels under something and not have to carry it, put wheels under it. If you can use God's power and not our own power, use God's power, right? So thank you for always engaging God's power and supporting us each week, and we truly appreciate your continued um, giving at the offering. So thank you.
Bible lesson, you have no right to judge yourself or others. You have no right to judge yourself or others. Well, let's hear some music. There are so many things in this life that are disturbing to us. Yet when we remember to live our lives in the light of eternity, we have the faith to know that we have many things to which we can look forward. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, As believers in Christ, we are of good courage, I say, and we prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home face to face with the Lord. One of the things we look forward to is to be reunited with our loved ones who are at home with the Lord and to meet the people of the Bible whose lives have been lessons to help us in our life's journey. Here's Larnell Harris to remind us we have friends in high places. I've got hope when things look bad And I can smile when I should be sad I've got friends who lift me up when I'm feeling low They'll watch over me wherever I
Today's Bible lesson, you have no right to judge yourself or others. You have no right to judge yourself or others. Welcome back. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 says this, So then let no one boast about humans. All right, again, the imperative mood, the mood of command. For in God's plan, everything belongs to you believers in Christ. Why? Because God gave everything to you. So no one should place confidence in humans those only with natural power. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have relationships with humans. So please don't get this, you know, because there are a lot of people who do this. You know, it's like, okay, I have no confidence in human beings, so I only have confidence in God. That is not the way God intended to work. What you have to have is discernment. There are human beings who are on your side. Do you recognize them? Or do you lump them into a category with everybody else? So, you hear people say things like this. The most important thing to me is family. I always think that that's a really stupid thing to say because the most important person to me is the one who created me. As believers in Christ, we belong to the person who was crucified for us. How do you think God feels when you say stupid stuff like that? The, The most important thing to me is family. The most being the highest thing of importance to you is your family. No, the highest thing of importance to you as the sovereign God of the universe and your relationship with him. Now, no one will be able to boast in the presence of God. Nobody's going to be able to stand in front of God and say, see what I did for my own salvation? We would never consider elevating ourselves in front of God. God isn't going to respond to a sales pitch. We do well when we boast about what the Lord has done for us. So what has the Lord done for us? Only one thing. What is it? Everything. Everything. He's done everything for us. He has provided everything you are, everything you have, everything you've done. You're you, the Lord's work. You are the Lord's work by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. So should we boast about teachers? That's what this next passage is about. Should we boast about teachers? Teachers are merely your servants. God, the Father, provides a plan, the Christ, the cross, salvation, the Holy Spirit, sanctification, the all things, himself, glorification, and rewards, the pancakes. He provides a plan, the Christ, the cross, salvation, the Holy Spirit, sanctification, the all things, himself, glorification, rewards, which are gold, silver, and precious stones. Uh, What do we have that was not provided for us then? Nothing. He gives us all the pancakes. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 22. Whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas, 
or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you believers in Christ because they come to you from God. We massively underestimate our potential. We are not of Paul, Cephas, and Apollos. They belong to us. I, as a teacher, belong to you. Amen? 1 Corinthians 3.23, and you belong to Christ. You are a possession of God, and Christ belongs to God the Father. So, should we boast about teachers? No. Teachers are merely your servants. Don't get wrapped up in that. And remember this, believers in Christ are immortal. Physical death does not end the life of a Christian. Physical death does not end a life, the life of a Christian. It, it ends the life of the body carrying the Christian. Your body is not you. This body is going to die. Why? Because it has sin. And everything with sin must die. So how are we to think of others? Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. We believers in Christ are the true circumcision who worship in the Holy Spirit of God and glory in union with Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We don't place our confidence in humans. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So let, us, let a man regard us teachers in this manner. Imperative mood, the mood of command. Do this. Regard us as fellow servants executing the orders of Christ and as stewards distributing God the Father's mysteries, the previously unrevealed doctrines of the church age, Christ indwelling you the hope of glory. 1 Corinthians 4.2, in addition, it is required of students to be found trustworthy. God is looking for faithful people. Who are faithful people? People who keep coming back to the word of God over and over and over again. Those are the faithful people. People who keep coming to God for answers. Those are the faithful people. The faithful people aren't people who don't make mistakes. Faithful people are the ones who keep getting up and coming back to God when they make mistakes. When I make a mistake, the first thing I do is go to God. Matthew chapter 25, verse 21 says this. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. That's what I want to hear God say when I'm face to face with him. You were faithful with a few things. I, the Lord Jesus Christ, will put you in charge of many things. Now enter into the joy of your master. That's what a 20-year teacher of the truth has to look forward to, to hear that he was faithful. Praise from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. But to me, Paul, it's a petty thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. Why? Because Paul does not judge himself in the middle of a marathon. Because the winner of a marathon in the middle of the race is in the middle of the pack. Amen? You're in the middle of the pack. 1 Corinthians 4.4 4, For I, Paul, am conscious of nothing against myself. Romans 8.1 says There is now no condemnation for those who are in union with Christ. Yet I am not acquitted by this. I'm by no means innocent, I sin. But the one who examines me is the Lord. That's a pretty bold statement from Paul. It's a statement that can only be made by a person with mental serenity. It's a statement made by someone who, who, is, immature, who is mature. What do I say to myself when I commit a sin? Oops, 
Now, back in the game, what did I say to myself when I was 30 years old? I'd get my rubber hose out, I'd sit in the middle of the floor, beat myself up, curl up in the fetal position, and stick my thumb in my mouth for months over one mistake. Why? So now a command, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, don't keep on passing judgment on yourself or anyone else. Stop it. Don't keep on passing judgment on yourself or anyone else before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes back to judge. When is that? The rapture of the church. Who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and who will disclose the motives of every person's heart. And then each person's praise will come to him from God. What is God going to bring to light? Those things worthy of praise, not your sins, not your mistakes, not your weaknesses, not your failings. Those things that you have done that are worthy of praise. How about if you do the same thing? How about if you think about the things that you've done that are worthy of praise? I was talking to Zachary about this the other day, I said, Zachary, you've been a believer in Christ since you were two. That's 29 years. That's worthy of praise. Amen? Amen. Zachary said, no, Dad, you don't understand. I said, what is it that I don't understand, juice box? <laughs> he said, you don't understand. I've I failed a lot of times. Not more than me. Not more than me, strictly from an age point of view. A 64-year-old guy has screwed up a lot more things than a 31-year-old guy has screwed up. Amen? Amen? You can't compete with me in screwing up. Amen? I am the winner of the screw-up derby juice box. <laughs> but see, that's what we do. And, and I'm in the middle of my race. I'm not worried about what I screwed up. Because if I want to I want to say, well, I was a Roman Catholic for 21 years and I was a systematic theology theologist for 29 years. That's 50 years that I was going down the wrong path. Now, let me detail for you all of the mistakes that I made in the 50 years. Who cares? Nobody cares. God had me in school. Go to sin school. Go to legalism school. Okay, now you're out. Go to grace school. Amen. He's not done. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. He snapped his finger and made the moon and stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be, as Deacon Denny said, because he's still working on me. Is he working on you? No. Seriously? <laughs> he didn't even think about you guys. <laughs> he's working on me. It's all about me. <laughs> so what's he going to bring to light? The things worthy of praise. So let him do the judging. You do the enjoying of the praise. In the meantime, get off your own back. Amen? Amen. Get off your own back. Do I need to name you? Do I need to start going around the room and saying, who needs to get off their own back? June, get off your own back. <laughs> All right. 
Well, the closing moments of our lesson are what they always are. They're for the benefit of anyone who doesn't have a personal relationship with the sovereign God of the universe, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We want you to know that God wants you. And what he wants from you is that you make the most important decision of your life. So if you closed your eyes in this life right this moment and found yourself standing before the sovereign God of the universe, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you're not going before Peter at the pearly gates. It's going to be the Lord. And there are no gates. And the Lord asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Now, such a scenario would never happen because that's not how God works. But let's just suppose. Many would talk about what a good person they are. Many would talk about all their good works, the things they've done to earn and to deserve entrance into heaven. The Bible has bad news for good people who want to work their way into heaven. Romans chapter 4, verse 4 says, Now to the one who works for salvation, his wage for his work is not credited to his account as a favor from the grace of God, but his wage is credited as what is due for the work. The bad news is that your goodness as a person and your hard work are not good enough to get you into heaven because they are not perfect. You were born with a problem. From the moment of your physical birth, God considered you to be a sinner. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. It is written, there is no creature who is righteous, not even one. Romans 3, 23. All creatures have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In addition to being a sinner from birth, you commit personal sins. Sinners are those who sin, uh, sinners and those who sin simply don't meet God's absolute righteousness standard because God requires perfection to let you into heaven. So being a good person or trying to work your way into heaven with good but imperfect deeds does not impress God at all. It's not your fault that you were a sinner from physical birth. But it is your circumstance. And unfortunately, being a sinner has a penalty. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, The payment earned for being a sinner is both spiritual and physical death. The payment earned for being a sinner is both spiritual and physical death. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ passed along this very bad news to a self-righteous Pharisee, Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verse 3, he said, To Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, the spiritual birth, you cannot see the kingdom of God the Father in heaven. And Nicodemus was stunned because he had been studying scripture for 20 years and had never noticed that. Well, this gospel message is the good news concerning what God did to fix the bad news for a sinner. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this, God the Father demonstrates his unconditional love toward all mankind. And that while we were yet sinners, while we were unrighteous, ungodly unbelievers, Christ died a sacrificial death for us. Who is this God that saves you? The Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. He says, I, Paul, deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, the gospel message, that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins, according to Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. Absolute righteousness is the admission ticket to heaven, and it is the key to eternal life, the resurrection life. And it is yours free of charge if you want it, because at the moment of your salvation, 
God makes you a saint. He turns you from a sinner into a saint, and he credits absolute righteousness to your account. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11 say this, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, that he is God, and if you believe in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.10, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in the imputation of absolute righteousness, which is your admission ticket to heaven, and with the mouth a person confesses, choosing faith in Christ alone, resulting in salvation. Romans 10.11, For Scripture says, Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not be disappointed. If you closed your eyes in this life right this moment and found yourself standing before the sovereign God of the universe, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the Lord asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? It's easy. Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and everyone in your household who also believes. All you have to say is, I believed in you when I was alive, Lord, and that's all it takes to get to heaven. You'd be right. So heed the invitation and the warning of John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has the resurrection life right at that moment. But he who does not obey the command to believe in the Son will not see the resurrection life. Instead, the wrath of God, the lake of fire, abides on him. There is a hell, a very real place, and it is described this way in the Bible. Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 to 43. The Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, will send forth his elect angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, unbelievers, and those who commit lawlessness, unbelievers, and the elect angels will throw unbelievers in the furnace of fire, the lake of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13:43. And then the righteous Believers in Christ will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. For those without a relationship with Jesus Christ, he'll just ask them to step to the left and to take the elevator. Just press down. Don't let that be you. Sinners need a Savior, and that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him, and you will be saved. All right, well, the final song. Many of you who are listening to this lesson believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but what do you know about Jesus Christ? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, the Apostle Peter says this, Sanctify, that is, set apart Christ as your Lord in your hearts, that he is the source of your strength, always being ready to make an oral defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the reason hope is in you, the absolute confidence of future blessings. Here's June Murphy to tell us some of the things we should remember about our God as we make our defense in her song, Essence of God.
God and Father, we thank you for helping us to get off our own backs. We thank you for providing the positive reinforcement we need to know how you feel about us and how you think about us. We thank you for all the gifts that you've given us, many of which we refuse to use. We pray that as we go forth this week into the world, armed and garrisoned by your word and your thoughts, 
that we are a reflection of your Son, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in everything we think, everything we say, and everything we do, and that we reach out our hands and bring those who are seeking to Christ so that they might, too, learn to look at themselves just as you look at them. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, in Christ's name. Say it with me. Amen. Thanks for coming, thanks for watching, and thanks for listening. Come on, you can do it.